1: Hello and welcome to the Mick Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, during this centenary of the decade of revolution, the lives of a number of individuals have been recalled, and indeed we've featured in this podcast, figures such as Arthur Griffith and Michael Collins. But while most of those who were prominent during that turbulent decade were men, it is only in recent years that women who made their mark have received their due recognition. One of those whose contribution to the founding of the state is now being recognised is Mara Comerford, a woman who lives an extraordinary life above and beyond what she did during that brief spell a century ago. The story of her life was recently published in book form under the title On Dangerous Ground, a memoir of the Irish Revolution. And it is, as it says on the tin, a memoir as most of What's Between the Covers was written by the woman herself in the 1940s and 50s and only really came to light in recent years. The book is edited by filmmaker Hilary Dully, who joins me now. Hilary, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Hilary, could I start with how you yourself came to the story of Maura Comerford? You married into the family, so to speak.
0: I did. Um, It started uh, a long time ago uh, because Maura actually died in 1982 And um, I never knew Maura um, because I met my husband, who was Maura's nephew, after she had died, about three or four years after she died. I suppose my first encounter with her um, was at the time my husband was still living in her old house. And there were boxes and boxes and boxes piled high. And there was also like a huge collection of Republican memorabilia, which, you know, would have been you know long cash crosses all that kind of stuff and she had a lot of um, Irish patriots She had a lovely pencil drawing of Roger Casement and um, a lovely portrait of Alice Milligan so I began looking through the boxes and I was just fascinated because I suppose like a lot of people I had a s- fairly sketchy knowledge of that period in Irish history you know I knew there was a war of independence I knew there was a civil war And I would have had, you know, school history kind of. But um, I just was I kind of fell in love with her archive, really, because it was just like looking, you know, picking up history and holding it in your hands. And then I began to discover different chapters of her memoir. Now, she had put a version of the memoir into the UCD archives in the 1970s. But um, when I went to look at that, I realized that there was a lot more material and I knew that she had tried very hard to have it published during her lifetime, which hadn't happened. Um, And I suppose um, it was always in the back of my mind that I was going to do something with it, um, but (laughs) obviously it took me a very long time to do that. But I suppose coming up to the decade of centenaries and the renewed interest in the role of women during the revolution, I just thought, well, maybe this is her time. And um, I began to put it together about two or three years ago.
1: Yeah, and I suppose one of the great things about it is, as I said, it's, it's a memoir. It's, it's not a biography as such, it's her own words to the greatest extent. And when you think of some of the, the accounts from that time, thinking particularly of Ernie O'Malley, and a few others that, you know, they've really stood the test of time and that we don't have a huge amount of material. And in this instance, we haven't had anything for a very long time that's written from a personal perspective. or family, I suppose, would you describe them as being on the fringes of the aristocracy at the time? Yeah, that's what I, w- I would
0: describe it as. Her father was a mill owner in County Wicklow, a flour mill owner but he died when Maura was quite young. So their family circumstances changed when she was about 13 or 14. And she went, um, the whole family, there were four children and her mother, and they returned to County Wexford to live with her mother's family. And they were the Esmonds of County Wexford. And, um, you know, uh, her grandfather would have been the younger son in the, the baronet line, who also won a Victoria Cross so they were very much the hunting type of people maddened their horses and living a very kind of gentrified life really in Wexford but having said that they were always just trying to get by financially they never had a lot of money they always had horses but not a lot of money so she lived that very I suppose reasonably rarefied existence and um, it was only as she got older and she began to, I suppose, um, well, the political st- situation changed in Ireland anyway. Home rule would have been um, very prevalent as she was growing up. So I think she began a gradual politicisation. Um, and then, of course, when she um, she was sent off to do a secretarial course in London, having gone to a number of boarding schools in Britain um, and... Um, it was there that her, you know, her first brush, as she would call it, with sectarianism began, um, and that was the moment I think that she really began to question the whole situation in Ireland.
1: And she was back in Dublin when Easter 1916 happened.
0: She was, yeah. She had a great, <laughs> she had a great knack of just being in the right place at the right time. She was visiting a relative actually in, in Dublin during 1916 and um, there's a lovely um, chapter in the memoir um, which describes 1916 really from the perspective of a young woman walking the streets just trying to take him what was happening and she does um, get to Stephen's Green and uh, goes and speaks to a sentry at the gate and he offers to take her in to Countess Markovich but she Really had to return to her rather ill relative in Ratgar, um and the next day when she went back to try and back, get back in again, um, the whole situation had obviously changed. But the description in the memoir, I think, is um, it's really uh, it's really evocative of just uh, that sense of just people on the street and trying to work out what's going on and all kinds of rumours going around, um, and that 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 was. I think probably as she was politicised in London, I think this was then, that was the end for, or the beginning <laughs> rather for her. She just um, just went hell, was hell-bent and become involved in the struggle for independence.
1: Yeah, you do get that sense to it. She's written about it, just the whole feeling on the streets of Dublin In some ways, it reminded me a bit of how James Stevens, I think, wrote about it particularly in the build-up to it around it at that time. It's funny, I, th- I think I mentioned when I was speaking to you earlier, you mentioned her nearly ending up in Stevens Green. My granduncle ended up there by mistake himself. He, he was in the Volunteers and he was sent back up to Fibsburg to get guns or something, and by the time he came back, he'd been displaced. So he we went in with Countess Markovic and I think it was Michael Malden and them in this, into the Stevens Green and from there into um, into the College of Surgeons. I mean, the, the whole thing in that respect, was pretty chaotic, as it was right across the city. But as you say, like, if she was becoming radicalised then, the change of mood in the country after the executions and everything, I suppose that would really have um, brought her uh, politicisation onto a whole new plane.
0: Yeah, and I think what happened next really was that she became involved in the 1918 election as an election worker in, in Wexford. And um, I mean, she writes again in the memoir, it, it's very interesting how that election went. I mean, you know, obviously Sinn Féin were the, the big winners and um, that was a huge change in Irish politics. But um, just the, the, the kind of work that they put in and how motivated, ideologically motivated they were. It's a really interesting election from that perspective, you know, because I think that's really the beginning of the big change.
1: Very much so, yeah, definitely. And and um, it was taken, and I don't think there's much dispute about it, as a, a mandate for a uh, form of violent upheaval, which, of course, did begin a year later, 1919, and really took off in 1920 with the War of Independence. And what kind of role then did Mara have during the War of Independence, Hillary?
0: Well, again, like... Maura had this great knack, as I said earlier, of just being in the right place at the right time. And um, she, Alice Stopford Green, who was a very well-known nationalist historian, she was living in Dublin and Stephens Green. And um, she came on a holiday with also with Jack B. Yates and a number of others to Wexford. And Maura met her there. And um, at the end of the holiday, Alice Stopford Green offered her a job as her secretary and to do some historical research. And so she went to live with her as well as working for her in, in 90 St. Stephen's Green. And again, this is kind of a, a unique um, aspect of Maura is that she was working at street level for Cumannamon. I mean, she was a dispatch carrier. She was organising um, different women, cycling all over the city, moving arms, doing all the things that the women of Cumannamon did at that time. But she was also exposed to Alisto Green, who was um, operating a, as a, a sort of intellectual woman to the higher echelons of the revolution. So her callers were like Michael Collins, Owen McNeil, Arthur Griffith, people you know who were the mainstay of the War of Independence. So she was exposed to this side of the revolution and also then to just at street level. And in her memoir, she, she described sitting demurely at these very exciting kind of, well, they would have been exciting, I suppose, for many people, dinner parties where there would be all these kind of people present. And then she would just be itching just to get away on her bicycle so that she could get on with the revolution at street level. That was a very unique experience because... Um, She was just exposed to so much on a political side, understanding and all these different people calling to to Alice Stofford Greens and also then just as a revolutionary worker. And then she went around the country for Alice Stofford Green to report to the Doll on um, different atrocities that were taking part around the country. So apart from being very active in Dublin, she also was all over the country as well.
1: And again, I suppose for the times, I mean, notwithstanding, there were a number of prominent women in that revolutionary period. Interestingly, a lot of them would have come from a very similar background to herself, if not, if not the even the aristocracy itself. I suppose you're talking there about, well, there was such, uh, such, I suppose, uh, an institutionally sexist society in general that it would have to be women of that standing to have made a mark perhaps at the time. But... As you're saying there, even the fact that um, sending her around to document atrocities, which would be pretty grisly work, like uh, that sort of thing, and, and that she was, they got her to engage in that, she was obviously very well regarded.
0: Yeah, I think um, when people talk about Maura now, even now, and when you even when you see footage of her, and it's mostly of when she was a very, very elderly woman, she was an extremely gracious person. And, you know, maybe that had something to do with the, the background she came from, but um, she also had a great way of being able to communicate with everybody, no matter where they came from or who they were. And um, I think probably the education that she got from Alice Stop for Green, because of course, you know, she, she wouldn't have had any third level education. Working for her as a researcher and having to write up um, research that she would have done for her, that was a kind of a form of almost like a, a third level education for her, so she she would have um, been rego- you know I suppose she would have been very able in that regard to be able to go and document different atrocities. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward
1: slash subscribe. And then we come to the split, the treaty, uh, the split in the doll, the split in the country. And she went on the anti-treaty side. And I certainly get the impression that she took it pretty hard, that she was ideologically opposed to the treaty. This republic that had been the aim, some might say a mythical republic, but one way or the other, she was wedded to that and there was only one way she was going to go once that split came about.
0: Yeah. And of course, like we we also have to remember, like and it's a recent um, anniversary during this decade of centenaries, which was on the 5th of February, I think. Common um, among were the, you know, the one Republican organization that decisively voted against the treaty. So it was something like, I can't remember the exact figures, but it was over 400 to 63 or something like that. So... The women really, and of course, the six TDs, as we know as well, also voted against the treaty. So they felt very strongly, a lot of these women. Um, and that's interesting, I think, to think about, because they were very engaged in, in the struggle. And then uh, so many of them decided, no, this is not this is not what we have been fighting for. They took the oath to the Republic very, very seriously. And even in the documents from that convention of Common where they voted so decisively against the treaty, there is an awful lot of talk about, you know, we've taken this oath and we cannot go against it now. So Maura did take it um, very badly, as I suppose a lot of women did. Um, and I suppose they just decided, well, you know we have to keep the fight we have to keep the fight going this isn't what we have been fighting for
1: yeah and as we know and it's going to be remembered i suppose over the next 12 months or so it all turned very bitter um how did she get on during the civil war what kind of role did she play there
0: well i think even more she played an even bigger role during the civil war as i think quite a lot of women did and of course it was much more difficult for them um, because in a way during the war of independence they Um, The British weren't, you know, they they didn't quite get that these women would be so active. And I mean, Maura describes, you know, moving arms under their very long skirts. And um, so they they weren't that suspicious of women um, in the same way. But of course, when it came to the Civil War, they were fighting against people who knew exactly what they were capable of and exactly what they had been doing and exactly who they were. So it became um, very, I mean, she writes about, um, I think it's one of the more moving parts of the memoir of that period, um, and the sense that um, I think she, you know, describes it as disintegrating, like she would um, travel, she was acting as a courier between different um, flying columns. Um, and she um, would go back and, you know, it would just have disappeared. It would have disintegrated. It was no longer there. Um, and the sense, you get the sense that gradually, you know, the, the realization came, well, you know, we're, we're not going to win this. This is not like the War of Independence. Um, the country was not behind them in the same way. And, um, you know, when in her memoir, it's so clear during the War of Independence that this was a countrywide movement, like a citizen army, women keeping house for the Republic, um, hiding uh, men, keeping um, documents, hiding uh, um, arms, and it went completely into the domestic space. Um, And then I think the, the utter sense of loss you know, having given your youth really and fought so hard and um, just kept the struggle going for so long, and then to find yourself just fighting the people that you actually were comrades with a few months before—I mean, it's tragic, really.
1: Oh, it is. It is the most tragic aspect of the whole thing. And during that period, she also went on hunger strike.
0: Yeah, she was um, she was arrested in uh, 23, I think, if it's if my memory serves me correctly. And she she yes, she did. She went on hunger strike for 27 days. Um, and um, of course, a lot of women went on hunger strike. She wouldn't have been alone there. And of course, there was huge hunger strikes amongst men and women at that time as well. So there's a real sense. In the memoir, and I just think a real sense of the time of just, um, sort of like, it's not exactly desperation, but such, um, they had such high hopes. They had su- such unity of purpose. And then suddenly they were fighting each other. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I, I think that's a really, um, it's going to be a difficult thing to, how do you deal with that now, a hundred years later as well? Um, Because in many ways, um, and I think the people in the North, in particular, nationalists in the North would say this, like the struggle, like it's not over for a lot of people still, you know, it still goes on.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it, I suppose. I mean, I suppose another view is, was it ever realistic? I mean, a a republic was declared, what was it based on? And... uh, if uh, if if you look at even nineteen sixteen the proclamation very much brushed over the fact that in the northeast of the island there were a million people who claimed allegiance to the crown. <laughs> so when you when you when you're building a republic, a thirty two county republic from that starting point you have to wonder about how realistic it was. But that's that's all in the mix in terms of what went on at the time.
0: Well Moore's view would have been, you know, that um there was uh OK, they were concentrated in one particular part of the country. Let's say the people who, who, who wanted to re- remain desperately, the Unionist part of the, um, the United Kingdom. But um, I suppose another way of looking at it is, as Maura would have looked at it, well, the majority of people wanted an independent island of Ireland. So that's, enough, you know, I mean, of course. It's incredibly complex and it, it, it becomes more and more complex all the time in a way because the more years that pass, the more the, the whole thing becomes less clear.
1: Yeah, quite possibly. What we do know is that the largely the political element of the Republican side in the Civil War eventually let down their guns, led by de Valera, went into the doll, and became... Part of the new uh, free state, as it was then known, and more. She she'd gone to America for Dev. At one stage, I think that was before he formed Fena Fall. Oh yeah, if I'm correct. It was in, in nineteen
0: twenty-three. The end of very yeah. end of twenty-three and twi- and twenty-four. Yeah. yeah.
1: Did she? Did she stick with him when he formed Fena Fall?
0: No, she did not. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But she went on to work for the Irish Press, the the Fianna Fáil newspaper, didn't she? Yeah,
0: you see, I suppose that's, again, it's like all these complexities of these relationships because, um, you know, people had fondnesses for each other, even though they might have um, gone very different ways. And I I don't think Maura maintained a fondness for Dev exactly, but she, um, I suppose she uh, had been his driver. And she had certainly escorted him over mountains. They'd walked for days together. So, um, when he was on the run, this was. So, um, Mora's life after she came back from America was very dismal, as were a lot of people's lives after yeah. the Civil War. And she, unlike many others, she had no family money. She had no home. Um, And so she was lent a small cottage by her friend, um, Father Sweetman, who had uh, formerly had a school in Gorey in Wexford. And she tried to run a very small poultry farm um, and eked out a very precarious living and had a pretty miserable life for about nine or 10 years. Um, And then uh, it was never quite clear because the offer didn't come directly from Dev. But um, there was always a presumption that he had heard of her difficult circumstances um, and a position came up um, in as the women's editor. And so um, that was her passport out of poverty. And it also gave her a bit of a platform and gave her some kind of re-entry into life. Um, it allowed her to buy a home, which she hadn't had since she was a child, um, and she brought um, her very beloved mother, Eva, who was a great supporter of hers and a great Republican herself, to live there with her. Um, so the relationship with Deb was, she she never really expressed, because I have asked my husband about this, exactly what she thought about him. Um, but, um, I, I mean, certainly, I think he probably did have some hand in giving her this job and so allowing her to have some kind of reasonable life um, which she took full advantage of.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I, I can well imagine Dev being the kind of individual, uh, a lot of people respected him. I wonder about affection would be a different matter How how uh, personable he was in that regard. Just, you mentioned that the Father Sweetman in Wexford and uh <laughs> a fun fact on the podcast: I do believe he was related to last week's guest in this pod, the environmentalist Peter Sweetman, who's very much known for. Yeah, um, I
0: wondered about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah is, a, I think, I think Peter a lot of the Sweetmans that. are connected.
1: Um, yeah, very much a Finnegale family on one level, but a, a different different uh, branches of them, he told me were. Uh, I liked a different kind of political entity. Well, the
0: Father but, Sweetman School in Gory is a story in itself because, yeah. like, it was a boarding school for boys. It was a hotbed of Republican activity. He was yeah. um, an absolutely amazing character. Um, and it, the school was eventually
1: closed by the church authorities. And did Maura, did she, was she ever attached? She never married. Did she have any, any long-term relationship or anything? Or was she very much somebody who stayed single?
0: No, she was a very um. As far as I you know know from my husband and also from other people as well, she was a very self contained individual, um. And in um the the book Survivors um, they, they there's a, a sort of a a preface to her piece um because she was interviewed for that book as well, where uh, it 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 said that Maura um always thought that there wasn't time to fall in love um, during the war, and for her, the war was never over. So, um, But she had, had a very full life, and she was very, um, very, very politically active, um, right up until her death, really.
1: Yeah, she was wedded to the cause, and then I suppose, we move it on, we're, we're nearly 50 years after that revolutionary period. Um, violence breaks out in the North, initially, uh, as a result of people correctly wanting their civil rights and everything goes on from there. We have the formation of the Provisional IRA and she was, as I understand it, she very much backed what the Provisional IRA were doing in terms of the violence as she saw it fighting for United Ireland or whatever.
0: Or whatever, Mick.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or whatever is right. Well, we all have diff- we all have different opinions on it, you know. Um. Yeah. I mean,
0: she look. Her politics didn't change. I mean,
1: that that, yeah. that is certainly true. No, the reason I say it, Hillary, uh, there were a few survivors who were prominent at at that time in the war of independence. And by the time this broke out fifty years later, there were people like Tom Barry. Initially, in the early seventies, he identified with what was going on then as later on in the 70s as atrocities mounted up and that sort of thing by all accounts he very much had had a second opinion as, as to whether he could still feel that way but I certainly get the impression that uh, from what you're saying like that Maura was somebody who was wedded to it right till the end.
0: Well I I would say um, and um, you know this is, would be I'd say she was not an uncritical supporter. Mm. I think that that would be how I would put it. I mean i I. I think she, um, uh, was very connected to the North after 1969. Um, she has a very extensive archive and there's an awful lot of correspondence in it. Um, so she was very involved with, um, knowing what was going on in the North. Um, but I don't think you could call her uncritical. Um, I think, you know, she, look, I'm sure everybody must have had some doubts as that situation went on. Um, but I think she was always on the side of um, the nationalist and on the side mm. of civil
1: rights. So, oh, well, We all were, yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, but she, you know, she, she would have um, remained a Republican, yeah. I mean, there's, there's no doubt about that.
1: And she maintained contacts with the uh, Republicans in the North.
0: She did. And um, her house, um, which was called St Nessens in Sandyford Village, became a sort of place of pilgrimage almost. She has, you know, I suppose it dates from her time of living, as I said, on the fringes of the gentry. She has a lot of visitors books from, you know, the uh, mid to late 70s um, where people who would come would sign the book. So you would have... um, Just a really diverse group of people, you know. On one page, there'd be Root Dudley Edwards, on another page, there'd be Bernadette Davlin, Rita O'Hare, you know, Danny Morrison. You know, so she she also was very um, involved with trying to bring the uh, women back into the history, Um, and that was she was quite passionate about that. So she would meet like a lot of historical researchers called where she was always very generous, gave people papers, gave people documents, um, engaged with people, did interviews, um, and she really wanted the role of women to be recognised because I think um, well I don't know whether she actually felt it because obviously I never spoke to her about it but I think um, her sense was um, that. The women had um, come out so strongly against the treaty. And, of course, you know, there's famous books like P- P.S. Hagerty's book and what he said about the, the women of the revolution. And um, I think she she, she really was um, upset by how they were portrayed um, yeah. and what happened to their stories, which effectively disappeared. So it's wonderful now, to have these stories coming back into the public realm. um, And, you know, there's great women historians who are doing fantastic work, just um, allowing us to understand, you know, the role of women during the the period.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And that is definitely, in terms of the new state and the way it evolved, one of the big tragedies was the fact that there were women like Maura and a lot of others. And I suppose really it was a combination of the fact in terms of the dominance of the church and how they perceived the role of women and perhaps there was hostility towards them from the new free state initially because so many had been on the anti-treaty side in the in the civil war but as you say their stories got completely lost and their opportunity to make a serious impact in the new state was literally swiped away from them. And it would have been people like Maura Cumberford, I suppose. And she did contribute, but they would far more to give, except they, they were just weren't given the space.
0: Well, she was actually very lucky, I think, in some ways, Maura, because she got the job in the Irish press, which, you know, allowed her, uh, of course, primarily to make a living and to, you know, have a home. Um, but also, um, even when she retired, uh, she became... Um, she used to write letters to the paper when writing letters to the paper uh, was a way of uh, it was a form of debate. And it's amazing to look back. Um, she would nearly write a paper a letter to the papers um, every, you know, second or third week. And um, then she, you know, there would be somebody would write back and then a whole debate would go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. It was an amazing difference about how those letters to the paper operated at that time and she saw that after her retirement as her her outlet for you know keeping her voice in the public realm because she did want to do that. She wanted to promote both the women of the revolution and I think you know clearly she also wanted to support the republican struggle.
1: Yeah, I have to say, Hillary, it's a fascinating read, and and as well, and particularly you mentioned it there about just the sense of place she gave, particularly around uh, the nineteen sixteen and going on there, the social history, all of that. It's 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 got a huge element of it all, and as well, of course, the the big uh, plus and including of course your own editing but the fact that it's a first person memoir that there's still something like that out there and that it is so well put together I think it's a great read On Dangerous Ground a memoir of the Irish Revolution Mara Cumberford, edited by Hilary Dully published by Lilliput Press Hilary thank you very much for joining us this week
0: Thank you very much
1: I'd also like to thank our engineer JJ Fernand thank you folks for listening go easy and we'll talk again next week